What's up, gang? Luke Thomas. This is MMA Fighting. This is the live chat, promotional law practice, episode 140, I think. And uh, today is Wednesday, May 27th, 2015. Thank you for joining me. Sorry, it's like a few minutes late here. I apologize. Um, today on the podcast, we will talk about uh, UFC 187. We will talk about, you guys can hear me? Yeah, it looks good. We'll talk about uh, Condor versus Alves, UFC Fight Night 67, which is Saturday. Um, we'll talk about Sarah McMahon's comments about the Reebok deal and gender equity. And uh, whatever else you want to talk about. Andre Olavsky, I saw lots of questions in there about him. Um, so we'll get to all that. And the best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. Um, you leave a comment there, it turns green, it gets priority, but of course not exclusivity. You can also get at me on Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas, and you can, of course, use the hashtag chat rappers uh give it a thumbs up if you'd be so kind and um i don't i already opened the soda today it's not officially brought to you by diet mountain dew which is not which is much better than diet barks which is uh uh lord of the rings orc blood disgusting this is actually pretty tolerable anyway um if you'd be so kind to share it this video the post that it's on any of those things would be really, really kind of you um, and be awesome. So without further ado, I think that the, uh, yeah, looks good. I got a microphone today. I don't know if you can see it Yeah, right there, but it's got a short, it's got a short uh, hook on it. Anyway. All right. Who cares? Let's just get to it. Shall we? Let's shall. All right. First question. Okay, back fist punch. This is about Arlovsky. You talked about this technique in your MMA podcast, The Monday Morning Analyst. Is this back fist punch trained inside the gym? Is it a legitimate technique being taught by trainers? We've seen it being pretty useful as a setup technique for Weidman against Silva and Arlovsky against Brown. We're going to see it more often now. Or do you think fighters just throw it during the fight without much practice during training camp? No, it's obviously it's obviously trained. The Weidman one, I think, was more of a distractive thing. It wasn't the same kind of situation, partly because the way Silva was moving, he was trying to get him to move a certain way. The way Arlovsky was using it was to actually land in close range. And I'm going to explain what I, uh, what I mean by that. Now, obviously, I'd like to talk to Mike Winklejohn to see exactly what he means um, and what all the different varieties and, and uses and uh, or non-uses are involved in that particular technique. But if you miss the Monday Morning Analyst, it's as follows. You remember the Carlos Condit-Dan Hardy fight. You remember the Ross Pearson versus Sam Stout fight. Many fights, you see this. Guys stand you know, left, left, or right, right. They both miss on a punch, right? And then what happens is they miss on the same side punch. So they go like that. But well, what happens is then they try to meet around at the center with dueling hooks. We've talked about it all the time. And it's really a dangerous place to be because you're in close range and it's just whoever lands first uh, or whoever lands hardest, but mostly whoever lands first. It's just two guys whipping hooks around the corner. It's a race. And whoever wins, that's who's going to land and the other person's going to go down. That's what happened with Stout. He got, he got cracked first. He went down. And, you know, if you go back and watch the Hardy versus Condit moment, 
Um, Hardy landed, but Condit landed just like a nanosecond before. Hardy didn't see it. Boom, you get crushed. You know, that's kind of how it goes. Two guys missing on the same side and then whipping opposite hooks around and whoever it's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's a draw there. So what you saw, like a, like an old west quick draw. So now you fast forward to Arlovsky versus Travis Brown. And let me just explain what happens here. There are, I counted three different instances when Arlovsky, he may have jabbed first, but he misses on a right. Rather than trying to whip around the corner with his left, he is already ducked over. His right shoulder is already leaning pretty far forward. He doesn't try to come back and wing you with the left hook. He just takes this hand, and it's not a spinning back fist. It's just a rotating back fist. And he rotates almost like a karate chop the right hand back in. He may have done it with he may have done it one time with the left, but certainly twice with the right. Right? So he's not even gonna try and whip around the corner with the left. Why? Well, it turns out that strike is still pretty powerful. But more importantly, it's just a shorter distance. And you're totally vulnerable on that side. If we've both extended on the same side, we're trying to come around with our power punch, it has to travel a much further distance to, to hit you. If I'm here, I've already, it's all, my arm is already over the, the width of my shoulders. That's a much shorter distance. And if I can still generate power behind it, well, now I'm in business. I don't have to worry about your punch landing. Mine lands. It lands faster, quicker, everything. So it's a, it's a really interesting thing he was doing there. Um, that is obviously not accidental. And I don't know whether to answer it now or to answer it later. I guess I'll get to it now. I, I, I um, because folks were asking about Arlovsky down in the comments section, but this is such such a related thing to it that I don't know how else to avoid it. So someone else asks, this, this is the next question, and I'll, I'll wrap it up all in here. Quote, uh, Luke, what is your opinion on the difference between Arlovsky now and in his prime 2005-2008? He doesn't seem to have the same speed or athleticism that he had in his late 20s, but is it more of a case that he is fighting a little more carefully and smarter? I heard some people complain he didn't have as much of a killer instinct against Brown, but people forget the opposite end of the spectrum when he tried to get crazy overhand right against Sylvia in their second fight and got caught. And then they show the gif where he's like totally out of position and he eats a right uppercut. Um, the uppercut has been a pretty consistent weapon against Arlovsky because um, he does like to duck with that right. He doesn't always set it up with the jab, although the jab has become, I think, a little bit more prominent now. But really, even then still, um, um, you know, you go back and watch the second Bigfoot Silva fight. Kenny Florian's talking about how Bigfoot could really employ the uppercut because Arlovsky was sort of looking down and just winging to the overhand right. A couple of times he went to the right, uh, right straight to the body. So I was wondering about this because do you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, someone asked me, does anything surprise you in MMA anymore? And I was like, ah, not really. Okay, let me walk that back. I just never saw this coming. I've been totally wrong about Arlovsky for, for quite some time. Now, there is a lingering part of my own skepticism that um, is like, well, is just heavyweight really bad now? Is he getting really lucky? I don't want to say those things because I'd rather just say I'm wrong about it and then force myself to take another second closer look. Um, the shop fight could have gone either way. Silva, Silvia, excuse me, Antonio Silva doesn't take quite punishment the way he used to. Um, the Shab, excuse me, the uh, the Brown win seems pretty legit, but it started off with Brown overextending himself and then walking essentially right into an Arlovsky right hand. But I uh, here's what I did. 
I went back and I watched all of the fights I could from Arlovsky, both wins and losses from the period there where he was. Because remember, he didn't wash out of the UFC. He had a bad contract dispute with them. And then they eventually put him on the prelim card. He beats Jake O'Brien, and then he walks. And then he had a couple of – who else did he beat in that time? Um, so he held the fence, in my judgment, against Marcio Cruz, or whatever he won that. Um, after losing twice to Sylvia, he beat Fabricio in a very terrible fight. He beat Jake O'Brien from, like, pity patter from Mount. Uh, and then he goes and beats Ben Rothwell in affliction and then beat Roy Nelson. First of all, he did not deserve to beat Roy Nelson. I went back and watched that. Roy Nelson, I mean – had no business having that fight stand up, had a Kimura grip locked up, released it, was still in full side control, and they stood it up. I mean, one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life. Okay, so then he loses to Fedor. Why? Those are jumping knee, gets clipped. Okay, Brett Rogers, Antonio Silva, and Sergey Haritonov. These are three losses that I went back and watched, and I was trying to figure out what had happened there. Is there some kind of common bond there? Is there something I didn't notice before that I'm noticing now? I'm not sure about how I feel about all this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because maybe there's something there. Um, and I'm just trying to understand what I missed. So if you think there's something between then and now, by all means, list it. Here's what I noticed. Number one, that strike force cage was really small, really small. That's relevant in both the Heratonov fight and relevant in the Rogers fight. In the Rogers fight, he gets blitzed back gets against the cage and doesn't move essentially just ends up trading punches because rogers was the aggressor he sort of overwhelmed him and the heritonov fight heritonov did a good job of moving forward i wouldn't say he did a great job of cutting off the cage but he did a good job of trying to redu reduce the mobility of arlovsky a lot of times putting his back against the fence you recall that the fight ending sequence happened against the fence so that's one thing I noticed, that you go back and now you watch his Antonio Silva fight. You watch the, to a lesser extent, the shot fight, but even then, and even the, 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 the Brown fight, um, yeah, the, the, the ending part where he got finished, Brown was against the fence, and yes, he, Orlovsky did get clipped, but a big portion of that fight was spent either in the center or just outside the center. No one had done a really good job of getting Arlovsky back against the cage and reducing his movement, especially not Antonio Silva, and especially not in the second fight. I mean, he was just – he basically had wide open space. And you look when Arlovsky circles out in the UFC cage versus when he circles out in the Strikeforce cage, and he has much more room, much more room. I think, I think one of the big takeaways of the romanticism of Strikeforce and the romanticism of WEC simply has to be attributed to the fact that they were just working with – fix my seat here simply has to be attributed to the fact they were working with smaller cages. I don't, I don't think it's a whole lot more complicated than that. I mean, slightly more, obviously, but um, it's a big component, a really big component. So that's one, I think. The second one, and perhaps the most important, um, Arlovsky gets countered a few times here and there, but boxing at range, he does a pretty good job. He does a great job angling off of his jab. He does a good job mixing up inside and outside low kicks. He does a good job when he has movement of making sure he uses the full space of the cage. He does a good job of mixing up his strikes. He doesn't go to the head very often with his uh, legs, so there's a little bit of commonality there, but at least goes and mixes it up to the body. He had Nelson with several body kicks. So all and, and, and Rothwell as well. Um, so in that sense, he has a pretty good like if you, if, you, if he can find space and you can and he can move around, he's a really tough task. Where he gets in trouble and why that back fist 
that he used on on Shab, excuse me, on Brown is so important is because you go back and watch the Heratana fight, and you go back and you watch um, the first Antonio Silva fight, which was part of that four fight losing streak. Um, he gets caught trying to exit the pocket all the time, all the time. I mean, routinely. He has trouble when he extends on a punch and doesn't get it, especially if it's from his power hand, finding a way out of the pocket without taking a beating. He got crushed there all the time. Um, for the Haritanov fight, the way the fight ending sequence worked was he overextended on a right, tried to come back, and what he wound up doing was taking a half step so that he was basically like straight up square with Haritanov. Haritanov saw it coming and timed an uppercut. Bing! Got him. Same thing with Antonio Silva. Not quite the uppercut, but he overextended on a right, tried to circle out, and ate, I mean, just punch after punch after punch, which then set up more because Orlovsky got a little bit of timid and um, Antonio Silva was able to be the aggressor. So for me, I guess the long and short answer is if I'm trying to pinpoint what he's doing differently now that maybe I didn't notice before, He's just a lot more defensively responsible. He's not putting himself in quite as much danger on his big punches. He's not getting caught on exits. And that return to the UFC gives him a lot more of the space that he needs to do the things he does well. Is he as fast as he was before? I mean, no. Um, is he as explosive you know, off the break as he was before? No. He's still pretty powerful as a puncher and with a little bit of room and with better exits from inside the pocket, boy, he's a handful, isn't he? He's a handful. So, you know, can he beat Cain Velasquez? I don't think so. But I never saw this coming. I never, ever – I've just been wrong, just been totally wrong. I just – there's nothing I can do except to be like, didn't see it. Didn't see it at all. Um, maybe I should have paid closer attention to the cage. Maybe I should have been paying more attention to what Har uh, Arlovsky was doing. But as I wrote in Signals of Noise, I was there at that Heratano fight, and I was actually kind of bitter about it because um, – I remember this was the Strike Force era run by Scott Coker, obviously, and uh, pre UFC purchase is what I mean. And they gave me terrible seats um, for media. I remember you guys when they all came out in those varsity jackets, and everyone was like, "What the hell was that?" They were right behind me. I could feel the heat from the pyrotechnics on the back of my neck. That's how that's how like bad my seat was. And you can say, "Well, what's so bad about that?" Well, the East Rutherford Izod Center had a terrible jumbotron, so I couldn't see up. And uh, more importantly, everyone, the fans were in front of you. So when they stood up, you couldn't see anything. You had to stand, but I can't type and stand at the same time. So it was terrible. I was so bitter about it. But what happened was after Arlovsky lost, I remember him walking right past me, Greg Jackson, maybe six or seven, ten feet behind him, something like that. I just remember the look on his face was just one of disbelief. It was one of, uh, hold on. It was one of um, shock. Uh, it was one of um, horror. It was one of I can't believe this. It was one of just uh, how did this happen to me? It was really like a sad thing to see, really sad thing to see. And it kind of had an effect on me, and I think from that day, I just sort of mentally wrote him off. Um, you know, he had moments in the Anthony Johnson fight, but Anthony Johnson – hadn't proved quote unquote that he was back at that point. I was still kind of like writing him off a little bit. Um, but I guess the big thing to take away from this is when guys have comebacks, 
you know, there's something major that they overcome. So, for example, in the case of Anthony Johnson, this was a guy who went from welterweight to light heavyweight. So he, you could see, okay, there was this obvious flaw he was fixing. Or in the case of Frank Me, when he broke his leg, you know, he really sort of got down to brass tacks um, and trained in a way that was really responsible. And there was a lot of third-party validation about that. Um, so you, you, when you have these redemption stories, usually there is something you can point to and be like, this was the problem, this has been addressed, and it has enlivened everything. With Arlovsky, you had, I think, an assumption, seems unfair at this point, that there was a slow um, decline, and you were just sort of watching it, Right. And it turned out what it may have been was that the strike force cage was not conducive to the way he was fighting back then. Um, I think three of the four losses happened then. Yeah, because the other one was, was the fatal loss in the ring, which he was looking good in before, remember? Uh, it was only when he overcommitted on that big punch or the big big uh, flying knee. Um, and so it, was, it, it seems like it's a function of improved space and tiny adjustments on things he was doing where he was getting you know, most problematically hurt. And it appears to be working. Takedown defense is always been pretty good. Um, power is still there. I, I, guess I, sh I guess in retrospect, you know, you look back, you're like, okay, maybe these are things you can point to. But um, he cleaned up a lot of the problems on exiting exchanges. And he has a lot more room to move now. And that seems to be working. Seems to be working. Someone says, GFC, uh, Glendale Fight Club is what I think they're referring to, ruins fighters. This is their words, not mine. Fighters see success of Ronda and think GFC is the end-all, be-all blueprint of success. They forget Ronda started there and was molded from scratch. Everyone who has gone there after her career has been gotten worse and worse. KO, Shafir, Duke, Ellenberger, Brown, Baszler, although Ellenberger has had a bit of a rebound. Uh, Edmund wants to change fighters' games completely in one camp, and it fails miserably. It's like the BJ Penn versus Edgar three all of a sudden uses some weird stance he never did before and was absolutely embarrassing. Um, I'm not sure that's an entirely fair assessment, but certainly they've got some, you know, some losses to account for in that, in that camp. This is Chris Weidman's weakness. If you had to point to flaws in Chris Weidman's game, what would it be? His willingness to get hit. You can only tank so much before your chin deteriorates. Being a slow middleweight inside the cage what would you perceive as his weaknesses, if any? Yeah, that's certainly one, the willingness to go turtle up, right? It's good in the sense that you're, you know, avoiding shots. But, um, you know, obviously you leave yourself totally exposed to body shots. You leave yourself exposed to being caught around the corner with someone who's got vicious hand speed. Um, takedowns are available at that point as well. Um, obviously you're taking unnecessary damage. So that's one is, is he has... Rather than he does use movement, he has good footwork. Obviously, I think I, I, you know, he's a champion for a reason. But if we're sort of nitpicking, which is what we're doing at this point, certainly his his willingness to um, defensively shell for extended periods gets me a little bit concerned. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I think that's one on the ground, man. There's not much to complain about. And I mentioned this on the Monday Morning Analyst. Like, did you guys notice when he passed from half guard? He just shoved Belfort's knee to the ground. Let me explain something to you. That doesn't work if someone underneath is good. And he's a black belt, Carlson Gracie black belt. Um, uh, Vitor Belfort, I believe. Carlson Gracie Jr. black belt. And he just got his knee shoved to the ground. 
That, to me, either tells me Belfort was giving up, which I don't think is quite true at that juncture. To me, the big takeaway there was that Belfort, uh, the strength differential. Wyman must have been way stronger. You just can't do that to people. Like, it doesn't work that way. If you try and you see it in MMA sometimes because maybe you guys are panicking or they have good, you know, re, half guard recapture or guard recapture or good reversals from there or something. But to just to just slide the three quarters mount like that and just shove your knee down. That I'm not saying that's why Ben wasn't technical with it. What I'm saying is his technique was half of that. The other half was that Vito must have been like, oh damn, this honky is strong. Because that was how I looked at it. You just you just can't do it to people. They slide their hips under. They bring their knees back to their chest. To be able to just drive someone's knee down one-handed, I'm telling you, against someone skilled, it does not work. It doesn't work unless you're super strong. His mount is sick. His, um, his positioning in mount is sick. His control is sick. He takes the back effortlessly. Great job on risk control when people turn, as you saw in this case. So what happens? Belfort turns. What does he do? He goes underneath the armpit. So this other hand comes over and grabs the inside wrist, and you use that to drive their face into the mat, extend them out, flatten them, make them go belly out. Belfort actually did a pretty good job resisting that, but at that point it's too little too late. Turns back in and just takes a beating. Um, so on the ground, man, he's he's got a lot to like. Standing up, um, he's, you know, I think they talked about it. He has good distance management. Um, he does take a little bit too much punishment for me. I'm not, he's not Frankie Edgar-esque in that sense, but, you know, he got hit with that check hook. He's a little bit slow in that regard relative to some of, you know, you saw Vitor Belfort after he, they defensively turtle. He comes back out. He throws a left kind of slow, and Belfort comes right over the top of the right. Bang. Spun his head. You saw that a little bit too. So, so for me, that's the issue is a guy with good speed and good footwork um, who's not a donk like Vitor Belfort is going to have, you know, might give him some problems. You know, is Luke Rockhold that guy? Is Jacare Souza that guy? You know, I don't know. But um, for now, that seems to be a, a pretty glaring weakness for this level. Is John Jones still training? With John Jones MIA from social media and not giving any interviews lately, I'm wondering if you've heard any word about him still training at Jackson's and Winkle John's. Uh, would it be obscene for him to still be training while waiting for his legal issues to be resolved? I have not heard that he's training. I don't know that he's training. If not, do you think the long layoff plus the other distractions hurt him in the long run? Is there any chance that Jackson Winkle John cut ties with him altogether? Um, I would. I um, would not suspect that Jackson Winklejohn will cut ties with him. I think they want to be a part of his redemption process. Uh, you know, also it's a business. The guy makes money, and they make money off him. So there's that. Um, but I don't know if he's still training. Remember, this is a guy who moved to Albuquerque to train more regularly because he wasn't doing that. So it would not surprise me if for the time being he's not in there getting his rounds. Or vice versa. But I don't know for certain. Uh, John Jones and Bruce Buffer. If Jones returns and beats DC to regain the title, does Buffer say and still or and the new? It would be and the new because he lost the title one way or the other. Cormier became the new champion, lineal. Cormier in that case would lose it, right? Uh, Jones would be the new champion. 
Travis Brown overrated? Simple question. Guys lost to both Bigfoot and Arlovsky. People were high on him thinking he'd he'd be the next contender, but those losses really do stick out now in hindsight, 2020. Yeah, he's a bit of a weird guy. I remember when people were like, oh, after the uh, uh, civil loss, that he was overrated. And then he comes back and goes on this tear, basically, where, you know, he stopped um, Gonzaga. Um, obviously, he manhandled Schaub. He beat Josh Barnett. I think that was the big one. Um, and he beat them in ways that he took advantage of their lack of defensive responsibilities, particularly in the case of Gonzaga and Barnett, you know, and just stopping them cold like that. It just looked like he had answers for all different kinds of positions um, when maybe that wasn't the case, certainly striking at range. That's where he, uh, well, he, he was kind of injured against um, Silva. So I don't know. He's a bit of a mystery, this guy, right? Like on at times he looks like a world beater. You know, he was just better than Schaub everywhere. Basically um, he lost to Verdum. Okay. But Verdun is pretty great at this point. You know, on the ground, he's a nightmare for everyone. And standing, um, you know, we've seen what he can do. He's got fundamental Muay Thai, strong in the clinch. You look at what Verdun did to Roy Nelson. You look at what Verdun has done to the clinch against many guys. He's a nightmare there. And at range, he's got a great kicking game. He's got way more athleticism than people realize. So I think the thought was um, he's got offense from a lot of different unique positions. He's got range if he wants to use it. Um, he just doesn't have the polish that a guy like Verdun might have. Just needs a little bit of time. And what it looks like is he still, I think, struggles at range a little bit. I think I don't. I wouldn't call him necessarily an inside fighter, but I just don't know that he's become as potent as you would think he would be at this point with that spacing of the game. Um, overrated, you know? I don't know. I just think he matches up well with certain guys better than others based on what he does well which is the case for everyone, but I mean in a really exaggerated kind of way. Um, I still don't think he – I would not call him um, a bad fighter by any stretch or a guy who doesn't belong in the discussion of certainly the top ten. Um, but he certainly has some issues to work out, doesn't he? Someone says that Wyman versus Belfort drawing. Tell us what you think. It looks like an MS paint drawing of Jesus in heaven watching Weidman pound on Belfour from Mount. I think it's very funny. Um, let's see. Arlovsky's path. Put into context just how remarkable Arlovsky's comeback is. Do you believe he should fight the winner of Kane versus Verdun? Wouldn't be mad at it. Wouldn't be mad at it, you know. Um, he's earned it or earned something pretty close to it. If not that, some people were saying Stipe Miocic maybe. I wouldn't be mad at that either. It's crazy, man. I mentioned before, like, again, you look at Johnson. What was he correcting? He was correcting the weight class. Just craziness. You look at Frank Mir, what happened? Well, he got in a motorcycle accident and broke his femur. You know, that's a hard thing to overcome. Um, but it's these, you, it's these things you can point to where you can be like, this was the obstacle. This was the major correction around the obstacle, and therefore um, – the results speak for themselves. And Arlovsky is just this funny thing where is he the victim of um, media overreaction or were we, because like I'm hardly alone in thinking Arlovsky was what he was. In fact, most of you watching probably thought he was that way too. Um, in fact, it was funny when I was watching the Roy Nelson fight. This was like 2008, 2009. 
and you hear the commentators being like, this is the Arlovsky of old. Like even then he had been viewed as someone who was something and had lost it and was trying to regain it. And that was, you know, six or seven years ago. So he has been, he has been dealing with this image issue for quite some time. Um, I, I, I just don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. I wrote in Signal to Noise that like, it's not just a redemption story. Like he's redefining what's possible. You see some people with games, especially in like jujitsu where, uh, or let's say with wrestling, but especially with jujitsu, you see guys with games sometimes where they do one thing wrong and it costs them a lot. But when they tweak that one, two, two, maybe three little things, small things though, um, it transforms their game, transforms it. And I'm just wondering if that's it because, you know, look, does Arlovsky have the best chin in the world? No, but doesn't have the worst one. This guy's with way worse chins. Like, oh, well, he got knocked out against Haritonov. I went back and watched that fight. Dude, Haritonov was landing bombs on this dude. Who can stand up to that? He's a human being. Nobody can stand up to that. And yet he got clipped by Travis Brown. Travis Brown threw everything he had in that moment into that punch. And Arlovsky got up and finished the show. You know, so like, do I, do, does he have the world's most amazing chin? No. But it's not like a Jonathan Goulet-esque, you know, chin where, unfortunately, it's just a real liability anytime you step in there against almost any kind of punch. It's just not that – it's just – it's not that bad. Um, that's not that good, not that bad. That's not what you can point to, and that's something that can really fix either. And he's shown against big punchers and ability to stand up to him, guys like Anthony Johnson. Anthony Johnson punches as hard as anyone at, at heavyweight. Sorry, he does. You don't think he punches harder, punch for punch, than Cain Velasquez? Cain Velasquez punches hard, but it's a more of an overwhelming volume kind of thing, right? Um, Arlovsky just appears to be a guy, from what I can tell, and I, I, you know, I really like to talk to Greg Jackson about it or somebody else in the camp. Like, what accounts for the turnaround? Because it wasn't just perception. You go back and you watch those fights. He's clearly like you can pinpoint the reasons. Look, look at this. Look how out of position and unbalanced and defensively irresponsible he is here. Kaboom! And it happened over and over and over again. Um, these weren't accidental four, four stoppage losses in a row. No, well, excuse me. Um, four losses in a row, three by stoppage, two by flat line KO, the Heratonov and, and, um, Fedor losses. And of course he even stopped, he had lost twice previously to, um, Tim Sylvia. Yeah. He got stopped at UFC 59 and then they had the terrible fight at UFC 61. And then he'd been stopped by Pedro Hizzo and Rico Rodriguez. Okay. But that was pretty early in his career. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think the perception was unfair. I just think it's one of these rare cases where what he was doing, um, needed adjustments, not huge ones, but important ones. And that is paying dividends. Now, whether that will help him against Cain Velasquez or Steve Miocic or Fabricio Verdum or whoever he fights next, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's worth acknowledging. It's worth acknowledging. And I think the other part was when he was fighting the Devin Coles and Mike Hayes and Mike Kyles of the world, you just weren't getting a clear sense of his ability. It just didn't tell you a whole lot. All right. Cage Warriors and Fight Pass. Look, Cage Warriors CEO Graham Boylan stood down in January and the company haven't held an event this year. With Marshall Zelaznik talking about big announcements recently, do you think it is possible the UFC could resurrect Cage Warriors and develop a similar fight pass relationship with them akin to the one they have with Invicta FC? K 
Cage Warriors has been a reliable conveyor belt of Euro talent in recent years, like in, in Jacek. It could provide UFC with both future stars and exclusive Fight Pass content. There would be a lot of value in Cage Warriors library too, especially given that it features several Conor McGregor fights. Have you heard anything? I have not. And what are your thoughts on the potential for such a relationship? Look, I would rather Cage Warriors be financially solvent on their own, but if they're not going to be, and it would be uh, possible for them to be resurrected with some sort of fight pass relationship, that is better than the alternative. I think that's what I would say. I would rather, look, you always want a situation where there are different entities throughout the sport that can buoy themselves without relying on UFC. It's a good thing that the UFC could provide that. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily a bad thing, right? It's, it's better to get the content than to not get that content, I think. But ultimately, you want people to be able to stand on their own two feet, if at all possible. It just makes for a healthier situation when all these different companies or entities, or the case may be, have the financial wherewithal to provide this service. It, it tells you that the strength of the sport is, um, you know, it's dispersed. And I'm a little bit concerned about everyone running to Fight Pass, not because I don't think Fight Pass, they don't have any sinister intentions, just be, or that it's not a good service, or that we don't want Fight Pass to improve. But all things being equal, it would be nice if Cage Warriors could find a way to make money on their own, deliver a product on their own, and just sort of do their own thing. And Fight Pass be a little more creative in coming up with content or original programming or whatever the case may be. Um, so they asked, well, what fighters eat in order to cut weight? Well, the answer is not much, first of all, but it's not one I'm going to answer a whole a lot intelligently, so I can just put that off, um, and I can find an answer for you. I'll make a note of it. I'll recommend it. There. Uh, Iquinta versus Green. That's an interesting one. Green has really interesting footwork, underrated footwork, underrated movement. Um for I Quinta to win, he would really have to reduce that. And I think he'd have to go back to his wrestling. Um, Green is good at trunk movement. Green is good at slipping out from in close proximity at angle and then and then reconnecting. Really, really underrated in that way. He uses a lot of the uh, – I think it was BJJ Scout who pointed out he uses the darting that Dominic Cruz does. Um, so, yeah, that that to me was – that to me would be very interesting. I, I I think Iaquinta has more ways to win, but if Iaquinta is sort of focused, so I would favor him, but if Iaquinta is sort of focused on one way of winning that on the terms where Green is the strongest, he's going to have some issues. Uh, Cowboy versus Rafael Dos Anjos 2. Luke, what are your thoughts on the suspected rematch? I attended the first fight, and my thought was that that night was that Cowboy didn't appear to have his head in the fight. The opportunities where they're f- were there during the stand-up exchanges, unlike Pettis versus RDA, but Cowboy never pulled the trigger. Will he have a better shot in the rematch, or is RDA too much of a monster now? Also looked over. Oh yeah, I didn't go to UFC 187, so that's why you didn't see me. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Look, I've been wrong about RDA too. This is the uh, I'm wrong uh, podcast. Um, I don't know about this one because Cowboy's stand-up is phenomenal, and especially if you trade in the pocket with him. Um, but do you remember the heat map for that one where everything was just sort of concentrated in the center? That's not how fights look. They don't look like that at all, most of them. In fact, that tells you how bonkers that fight was, that the heat map was like totally concentrated. 
it should be all over the place and usually in wider circles for sure. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. And I would say that because I have a feeling that um, on the ground, as good as Cerrone's guard is, and anyone can be caught, but all things being equal, Dos Anjos' jiu-jitsu is pretty good. It's pretty good. He's going to pass guard on you. He's going to have really, really good defense. Um, he's going to have tight positioning. He's going to make you suffer underneath. Now, maybe he won't get a submission, but I suspect he can pass them out at some point on Cerrone, as good as his guard is. Look, 90% of submissions happen after you pass someone's guard. If you play around in, in someone's guard eventually and have a good guard, they're going to get you. It may take a while, but they're going to get you. But if you pass guard, you open up an entire universe of opportunity for yourself. Um, and Dos Anjos can pass guard like well. He can take the back well. He can hold the back well. Um, he's got good ground and pound. Like there's a lot he does well. He's got great wrestling. And I think that's the other component to this. Cerrone, as good as he is and as amazing as he's been on this streak, and there's no taking that away from him, and his wrestling is just not, not all there. And I think that Dos Anjos does not get credit for how good his wrestling is. He's got great single legs. He's got good doubles. He's got good doubles against the fence. He's got good doubles in open space. I'm not saying Cowboy can't catch him, but it's hard for me not to favor him again. When a guy looks like he doesn't have his head in the fight, it's because he's probably worried about something else the other guy might do. When you're fighting John McDessie, the takedown threat is pretty minimal, especially if John McDessie coming in on short notice. You can just open up and bang with that guy, um, which is exactly what he did. Let's see. Two-part question. Do you worry about Weidman's vulnerability in the future? Yeah, it's an issue. It's an issue. Um, let's see. Two. Who do you feel poses the bigger challenge against Chris, Jacare or Rockhold? I've always felt Jacare would push Chris, excuse me, I always felt Jacare would give Chris major problems considering his BJJ credentials, his pressure passing, his takedown abilities as a BJJ guy, and his finishing ability on the ground. Plus, Danny, I think it's fairly even. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I really don't know. Part of me feels like um, Weidman could. Uh, box him up a little bit with pressure fighting. Get him on his back foot, take away the kicking game of Jacare, which he also uses to create distance to then actually open up his takedowns, which is kind of interesting. He'll kick back up, and then as you come forward, dive in. He's got a lot of that going for him. Um, in close range, who do I favor in a boxing contest? I think Jacare is probably the better overall athlete, but I think Wyman's a little bit heavier handed. So that could be a big difference, plus trying to fight backing up is hard to do. Um, I think Wyman could stuff his takedowns or win takedowns late and avoid subs. I really do. So part of me feels like it's a little bit more favorable towards Wyman in that regard. With Rockhold, man, I can't get heads or tails because, yes, I can see him passing guard, but I can see Rockhold locking up something kind of interesting, reversing position, um, improving his scrambling. That, that, to me, is the issue against Rockhold is how much of the, it – because even Rockhold has said Wyman's the better wrestler. Like – Rockhold will say, look, I'm the better striker. I definitely, like, on the ground, I'm better at jiu-jitsu, right? Okay, we'll give him wrestling. So he says that. Okay. So if Wyman gets a takedown and he starts from full or half guard, what is Rockhold going to do? Jacques Array has got a thousand tricks from there. Um, and I'm pretty confident that Wyman can at least put himself in a position to neutralize most of them or many of them. 
you know, just by not even trying to pass the side, maybe holding in half um, and then banging them out with elbows or something like that. Um, but, but Jacare can wrestle, right? Jacare can scramble his ass off. Rockle's a great athlete for sure, but he, those long, lanky types, man, they just don't quite scramble the way the other ones do. And so part of me wonders, like, would he piece up uh, Wyman on the feet? I, mean, I think he might in the case of Rockhold. And on the ground, is anything possible with creating weird transitions or catching subs or some kind of choke or, um, you know, reversing to mount? You know, remember the, remember the sweep that Mike Pyle hit, uh, the Kimura sweep, right, to mount? Um, maybe something like, oh, that was more of a reversal. But whatever the case, um, I could see that with Rockhold, but I just wonder about the scrambling. So I don't know, man. It's a tough fight either way. If Rockhold can really, and Rockhold's takedown defense is pretty good too, you know. If Rockhold can work on his takedown defense and make it a, a, a stand-up contest, you know, I like his chances a lot. Um, I really do. But I just don't know. Weidman's wrestling and sub-defense creates a problem for both guys. It really does. In different ways, but it's problematic. McMahon and money woes. What is your understanding of the claims Sarah McMahon made on Ariel's show regarding the unfairness of the new deal to majority of the female UFC fighters? Yeah, she's claiming Title IX, and I don't know that it falls under Title IX. That's beyond my the purview of my um, knowledge of the statute. I thought Title IX sort of only applied to collegiate athletics, but maybe not. But what she's essentially arguing is that I understand that the policy created, the tenure policy, was not designed to suppress women's wages, but it has that effect disproportionately. Now, I think most folks are arguing, well, it has that kind of effect for, for um, you know, um, if they created a, a men's straw weight or atom weight division, right, to appeal to um, Southeast Asian weight classes and Latin American weight classes, it would have that effect on them too. So. It's that is clear, unequivocal proof that it's not like, well, we just don't care about the women. This is designed to say F you to them. It's not that. It's just that in the way that it works out, who is taking the biggest hit if you measure it up by gender? Well, women are taking a dramatic hit, a dramatic hit. Um, even the lesser weight class guys like flyweight, um, they're taking a hit too, but maybe not quite to the same extent. Right? Women have only been in the UFC since, what, 2013, something like that? And so that's sort of the argument here. Um, whether or not Title IX qualifies for that, I don't know. We'll see what, kind of, what her legal counsel says. Um, but And I noticed that MMA fans were like, so blah, 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 blah. I know, because women MMA fans like can't fathom the idea that something being unfair to women should matter to them, which is crazy. But here's what I would say. Look, do you remember how they came out and they told us, you know, we've consulted with our athletes ahead of time and we talked to a few and they seemed really pumped about the deal. Okay, whatever they did was clearly not enough because 99% of the fighters seem to have no idea about any of the terms of this deal or, or how much they were going to be made. So whatever effort they made to like let people know ahead of time was cursory at best, clearly. Uh, that's the first problem. I think the second problem is, it just underscores that there's not enough money to split, right? Because look how they're splitting it. It's like literally one criteria. It's tenure. 
which was better than the rankings. I think we can all mostly agree on that, right? I think, you know, generally speaking, that's how other leagues do some of their, uh, at least in part, do some of their um, uh, uniform. Like, so Nike makes the NFL jersey, right? The, the Part of that is, or baseball, I think. I'm not sure who makes baseball's jersey, but whatever the case, that they Major League Baseball does part of that on seniority. So, okay, we understand that that makes sense. Um, but I think what McMahon's argument underscores is whether or not you want to buy the gender argument, and I completely buy it, but if you don't, that's fine. Okay, at least you can buy this. It would make sense if there was enough money to hand out that you could have sort of a two-system in place where some of the money was awarded via seniority and some of the money was awarded on um, let's go back to rankings or um, some other system they could come up with where your relative contendership value was was rewarded. And so the longer you in the UFC, you know, the more you made money and the better you did. Some some way we could come up with that, the better you did. And those two resources together would handle that because McMahon is what? She's ranked in the top 10. So she doesn't have the seniority, but but she's she's a, she's a highly ranked fighter, and so she deserves to be compensated as such. But that wouldn't entirely eliminate the problem. There will always be some kind of issue or some kind of gripe. We can all agree on that too. You know, when people say all oh, the fighters will never be happy, they're not necessarily wrong about that. But just because people will never be satisfied does not mean there aren't glaring problems. This is a glaring problem. There's just not enough money to split. There's just not. We asked this question at the very beginning of what they were doing. Are they putting back in what they are taking out? And it seems pretty clear at this point that they're not. Now, maybe they will in the future, but we have no guarantees because whatever sponsored money or whatever additional sponsor goes on the Reebok uniform, they have already said that money goes 100% to the UFC because they have every right to make that deal because the fighters don't want to get together to do anything about it. So there you go. So there you go. I think that there are ways that if there were more money, there would be a way to create a multiple tier system to award um, sponsorship money. But when you're dealing with $2,500, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to find unique ways to split it. You just sort of say, well, this is all you got. Tenure. Um, And even if you had a ranking system and a tenured system coming up with it, there's still only that amount of money to go to you. People are fighting over this because no matter what system you put on there, it's not sufficient. And the reason why is because there's not enough money. (laughs) Sort of pretty obvious. You can say, oh, McMahon, she's a feminazi. Well, um, whether she is or she isn't is not relevant. What her argument highlights, however, is that you can at least say for people in newer weight classes, they are not benefiting from the system in any kind of commensurate way, even when they're highly ranked. That's what you could say at least couldn't you? You could. And if that's the case, then what you have is just a system where there's just not enough money to be split in any kind of way. Um, and so I am very sympathetic to that in the sense that I, there does not appear to be evidence that they are putting in what they're taking out. And so um, on that level, I am sympathetic to McMahon, but if the fighters and speaking out is good. So like Ryan Jimmo, you know, acknowledging his grievances is good. Sarah McMahon acknowledging her grievances are good. Things don't change if you don't say something. But that's just one step. So if they really want to change something, they have to change something. Uh, Until such time, 
it will be what it is. Uh, Vitor's high levels. With Vitor's high testosterone readings and him still being able to fight, what are the reasons of testing? I don't know what that means. I don't know. What are the reasons of testing? Is this the law? I don't know what that means. Um, talking about Bader, what do you make of Bader versus DC press conference confrontation? Must have been successful because now folks are talking about Ryan Bader. How do you think Bader could do against DC, in your opinion? How does he get the job done if he could? I don't think he gets the job done. I think he takes a, um, a pretty bad beating against, against Daniel Cormier. I don't like his chances against Daniel Cormier at all. Um, his best chance to winning, he's got a big overhand right, but as we've seen, that's not necessarily the only weapon you're going to be able to use against Daniel Cormier, even if it lands. And his other go-to is wrestling, where he is uh, badly outmatched. He has size advantage, maybe even strength advantage. Dana Cormier is pretty damn strong. So for me, um, you know, everyone wants to say that the press conference thing was contrived. I think maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't really care if it was contrived because um, I wouldn't mind seeing Bader. Like, here's the thing I don't mind about Bader getting what he might be getting. If Bader gets a title shot, I'm not saying it's the most sellable thing in the world. But here's what I would say. If that were the top of a Fox card, and the, the, let's just assume that the second, third, and fourth fight, because there's four fights on the Fox card, imagine they were all good. Would you hate it? Or imagine it was the co-main, and then there was another main event that was something, I don't know, a women's NJ check fight or something like that. Uh, I'm not saying they would do that. Look, if they got creative and started doing that, would you hate it? I wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't hate it at all. See Daniel Cormier get up there to see a grudge match, and, and may, hey, look, maybe Ryan Bader could shock the world. You never know. They have to fight for a reason. But the point being is, if they put it on pay-per-view, it's not that attractive. If they put it on free TV, the equation changes a little bit. And the second part I would say about that is, because um, I don't think all of title fights deserve to be on pay-per-view. I know UFC has a certain and different view about that, but that's just sort of my take on it. But the other thing I, I, I really sort of point to is, um, look, man, sometimes you got to have these guys defend against meaningful contenders. Phil Davis is gone. Um, Gustafson is still rehabbing. Uh, Glover beat Bader, uh, but Glover lost to Davis. Davis lost to Bader. So there's kind of that flowing out there. Um, Johnson just lost. Jones is gone. DC's the champ. DC and Bader hate each other. Like, it's not a crazy thing. Like, if you look at Ryan Bader's resume, people always, like, they bag on him for some reason, man. I don't know why people do that. Let me uh, pull up his, his record. This is the list of his wins in the UFC, okay? These are Ryan Bader's wins. And I've made this point before. Since joining the UFC, here's who Ryan Bader has defeated. Vinny Magalash, Carmelo Marrero, Eric Schaefer, Keith Jardine by KO, uh, Little Nog, Jason Brills, Rampage Jackson, Vladimir Matyushenko, Anthony Parash, Fejal Cavalcanti, Ovin St. Preux, and Phil Davis. Folks, that's a legitimate resume. He's got some holes in it. He, you know, he won the Phil Davis won via split decision, uh, fought Matyushenko at the end of his career, lost to Glover Teixeira, Lyoto, Tito, of course, and then John Jones. So he's definitely had his downs too, but he's got a lot of ups, man. He's on a four-fight win streak. Peroche, Cavacanti, St. Peru, and Davis. I'm not saying that automatically makes you worthy of a title shot, but that definitely makes you worthy of respect. And that definitely puts you in the, the, the contender picture. It just does. And a champion has a responsibility to defend his title against the most deserving contender. Um, so we can figure out what most deserving means. We can have a debate about that. But, like, this immediate dismissal of him, I think, is a little bit crazy. 
Let's see. You think Vitor might move down a weight class? I'd be surprised. His striking power is natural, so he could do well at a lower weight. Maybe. Would he retain the same speed advantages? At his age, do you think his natural best weight would be now? Probably, I think, still middle weight. Luke, why do you think Dana has taken such a step back? I think the lawsuit has put a limit on the sorts of things he can publicly say, which we've gone over a million times. Uh, 145 division. How do you see Diego Sanchez sizing up at 145? Yeah, I just think he's going to have a tremendous speed disadvantage there. Tremendous. Trying to be that big at that weight class when you naturally aren't, it's going to be a, a terrible toll on your body. Uh, I'm not saying he can't do it or maybe get a couple of wins down there. Maybe he can, but it's not going to come easy. And against anyone like Chad Mendez, who has just sort of naturally got a pop and step in that weight class, I mean, they're going to eat him up. They're going to eat him up bad. Um, same with Ricardo Lamas. I think, frankly, even the same with Dennis Bermudez, you know, just guys who naturally sit at a weight, they're going to move differently versus someone who has, you know, starved and drained themselves um, to reach an artificial limit. Because at some point, if you just ask yourself, what is 145? It's just a number we made up for a weight class. It's not a real thing. And so you're going to get your body to an unnatural thing and you're going to take drastic measures to get there versus guys who can sort of relatively comfortable get there. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, Look, previously you've talked about how not everyone has the capacity for violence, the ability to do tremendous damage to opponents for fun or as a profession. Do you think this is a major reason why MMA will never draw the same amount of A-level athletes and why it will never be mainstream? Is the sheer amount of violence just fundamentally unappealing to most people as spectators and athletes? Certainly some. Certainly some. This is why, I like, uh, just to sort of circle back for a minute, the Reebok argument about NASCAR is just sort of, like, blatantly just not true. You mean to tell me, like, the real reason this can't go bigger than it is is because these two guys um, elbowing each other in the face, bleeding onto a canvas – they don't have Reebok on them. Like, did anyone say after UFC 187, you know what would have taken this to the next level? Reebok. Like, no one ever said that. No one's going to say that because it doesn't make any sense. I understand that they're – look, here's why the UFC wants to do Reebok because, as mentioned before, they believe with very good reason that if your only sponsorship opportunity is you walking on a – television screen in, in an event that we're putting on that we're broadcasting and people want to put lo- slogans and logos on you. But then when you leave, you're of no value to them. You're just monetizing the space that we're giving you. Well, we should be able to monetize that. I don't think that's wrong. <laughs> I don't think that's wrong. And they want to control that because they believe it's of theirs to begin with. That's what this is about. It's not about whether it looks like NASCAR, although I mean, I'm sure they would like a cleaner look. You know, it's not, it's not like they, that would be a terrible thing. It's just not a necessary thing. It's not really what's at the heart of this. What's at the heart of this is they believe this is their market, which they haven't been able to access because the fighters have been using it on their dime, essentially. And their argument is not bad for it. But again, as we've always said, the other argument is that you've given us this. This is what we, are, uh, we believe we're owed, and we believe we're owed this because without this, you have no product. Right, it's a two-way street, which is why I think the best answer for both is them two working it out together. But it's not about you know NASCAR and all this. Stuff. It's got nothing to do with it. 
You know, you mean to tell me like Daniel Cormier just driving an elbow into someone's forehead all of a sudden becomes like some grandma's going to watch that and be like, well, I don't know about Hayabusa, but if he'd been wearing a Reebok, this, in my opinion, would change overnight. It's got nothing to do with it. To answer your point, yeah, like there's definitely going to be just a measure of palatability that's going to be hard for some people to accept on this one. Obviously, it's going to skew older. Maybe as time goes on, that won't be quite the same problem. Um, again, I don't think Reebok will hurt it in any, in any regard. I don't think it will meaningfully help it, but it certainly wouldn't hurt. Um, but uh, but uh, and so, you know, why won't it draw A-level athletes? Um, it will draw the occasional A-level athlete, but most A-level athletes, particularly in America, there's a recruitment system for them very early. Very early, like it is in Europe, too. Who's this guy that Real Madrid got? I can't pronounce his name properly. Erdegaard? Um it's spelled Odegaard, but I'm sure it's not pronounced that way. You know, some 16-year-old prodigy. He's recruited early at 16. They've already got him in the in the system. Um, although he got a few minutes against uh, the last game, subbing in, subbing in late. Um, but you get the idea. Like, if you're a tremendous athlete in the United States, depending on what you are, and you're good at cross country, they're going to get you in high school or even before that. If you like to wrestle, you're going to start wrestling before you're even 10 years old in this country. They're going to bring you up in that system. Now, maybe some of those guys go on to MMA, but you get the idea. Um, if you're if you have if, you know if you're an explosive, fast twitch kind of uh, athlete, you're they're, you're they're going to get you to play American football. It's just how it's going to go. So that's part of the reason too. And the reward system for those is much much higher. You get a lot more money playing the NFL than you do in the UFC, unless you're a major superstar. Um, you know, the league minimum is four hundred twenty thousand. The you can make six figures just by being on a team's practice squad. It's $107,000 a year in the NFL. So all those reasons combined to it. Like NFL football might be violent and people die, you know, um, in NASCAR races, but you're not exposed to that same level of violence. You're not, you're not watching some dude driving another elbow into another guy's forehead. In, in, re, in real medical terms, maybe that's not as big of a deal, but Perception is reality in some ways. And so when people see something that they're horrified by, because they're not used to seeing something like that, you know, there you go. Uh, the UFC 189 trailer, what did you think of it? I saw some people who, online who didn't like it. I, I loved it. Um, you know, did it tell the whole story of the fight? No, not really. It's more of a, it's more of a trailer for insiders, I think, a little bit. So in that sense, uh, maybe there's a measure of criticism that could be had. But I think what I liked about it was that it just showed everything what that fight is. It's a huge fight. It's taking place in Las Vegas. It's going to be in the summer. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a war of nations that takes place in the United States. We are hosting this other battle of nations, this other continental battle, really, South America versus Europe. Um, I, I, and I thought it had a feel of like a storm is coming kind of vibe. I liked it. I liked it. I think... I think we need a whole lot of less is more touch now in MMA and, and just everything they do about not just UFC, but Bellator too, you know, everything about combat sports that's promoted. I understand wanting to show highlights of guys fighting. I, it makes sense. I'm not here to talk you out of it, but like how much advertising do we get on a week in a week out basis where like the advertising from an artistic standpoint is just beating you over the head with the message. Like just clubbing you. It's like, oh, stop. I get it. I get it. You know, um, to get something that's a little more nuanced, that's a little more less is more, to getting a little bit more, you know, getting you to lean in as, a, as opposed to coming to you. Um, I think that's cool. 
I think that's really cool. So it was shot well. It had a nice vibe to it. It's got a real less is more kind of thing. And there'll be time for highlights of, you know, McGregor spinning kicks and, and heavy punches and Jose Aldo's Superman punch off the cage. There'll be time for all of that. But it's nice to have a little bit of, ooh, like the ability. The fight game is so much about building anticipation, about slowly, slowly turning up the heat. And you can't have the heat all the way hot this far out. It's got to it's got to slowly ratchet up. So I like I like the the timing of it. I like the vibe of it. I like the artistic, um, uh, reserved nature of it. There's a lot of it I liked. All right. Uh, World Series of Fighting plan to go head to head against UFC 190. You think this is a smart move? Why would this be a smart move? There's nothing about that that's smart. Nothing. That's the opposite of smart. Now, it may be a necessity because whatever, their broadcast partner wanted it or they got locked into a date or something else. So, you know, they're just stuck with it, in which case they probably know. They're like, ugh. But, like, is it smart? Why would it be smart? I mean, on the one hand, if you do it that same day and you go before, you can get people online. Um, We talked about this with Bellator doing that, I think, with uh, the Tito Ortiz fight and something else. The Tito Ortiz fight was going on right after that UFC fight had ended. I'm not sure what event that was that day, right? So they were co-opting everyone. Um, But Spike is a bigger draw. The Tito Ortiz thing is a bigger name. Um, You know, Spike's in way more homes. NBC Sports is not. Um, So, no, I don't don't find it particularly interesting or, um, you know, wise move. Can there be a rule that people ask no more than two questions on here as there are idiots taking over? Um, no. Someone says a suggested format change. I'll take a look at this later. But keep the chat moving, dog. Uh, your thoughts on Anthony Johnson's 500K purse? I don't put too much into it because those are not accurate numbers. There are so many different ways that money can be added or subtracted from what is publicly declared. I I, I find that I am sure, I am sure that some way or another, Daniel Cormier is going to make more than Anthony Johnson in that fight. I'm, I'm very confident. Frank Mir versus Arlovsky battle of OG heavyweights. It is amazing. This fight of original new breed of heavyweight prospects has never fought. They almost did. If Mir beats Duffy, would it make sense to finally match up these two legends? I love that idea. Um, Could Frank Mir bang with him on the inside? Could Frank Mir get it down to the ground? Man, you go back and you watch Roy Nelson versus Arlovsky. First of all, he gets him down with relative ease, number one. And number two, passes guard immediately. Arlovsky has never had a good guard, man. Never. Never had a good guard. Um you know, the Sambo guys, they play, a, they scramble away or they play top. They don't play a lot of bottom game. And so uh, Arlovsky's never had a good guard. If Mir can get him down and hold him down, he can make things real interesting. So I don't know how likely that is. In fact, you know, I would probably, at this point, I'd have to like Arlovsky's chances against him. But I um, wouldn't mind seeing it at all. I think it's a great idea. Uh, back to this question, different than the one from above. 
Luke, I've got a backfist question uh, about uh, why till now have we not seen more of them? It seems like a hugely effective weapon due to its surprise factor and how it screws up guys' timing. Totally does. I would argue that it isn't a tool in every MMA fighter's arsenal because of the influence of boxing training and MMA stand-up. If backfists were something Wink John worked on specifically for this fight, then those guys are geniuses. I seriously doubt Travis Brown at Glendale Fighting Club, a boxing gym training with Edmund, who had his core as a boxing trainer, was thinking about them in sparring and when he was learning techniques and combinations, as they are illegal in boxing. That's true. So the question is, do you think in the future we are going to see more techniques like this? Yes. Like, remember what I told you before? Like, we're, we're, not, at the, we're not at a point of um, technical adaptation and evolution is not over. But these gigantic leaps, that era is over. What we're going to see now is striking designed for someone's body type, striking designed for someone's style. And what I think that backfist is, because I don't think it's just accidental. It's just not accidental. What I think that you're going to see is striking design. Like they made that up because it just fixes so many of his problems about exiting, about trying to match someone. Just, you know, you flip, you're flipping a coin, man, when it's just the two battling hooks. You're just flipping a coin. So why do that? And you've got this problem that, that hurt you in so many of these fights. Let's fix that. Let's fix that by just trying this out. It's something that's illegal in boxing. Something that I don't even know if they do in kickboxing. It depends on the rules. Some places don't allow spinning back fists, um, and some do. Um, but it's not even a spinning back fist. It's just an over-the-top over the bang. Um, partly that's aided by the fact that the gloves are so minimal, you know? So you can sort of like forearm chop them, which you can, even in kickboxing you wouldn't be allowed to do. Um, it's just a perfect MMA technique because it's, so, it's, it's something you could literally only do in MMA, I think, for the most part. Almost, if not exclusively, almost exclusively. It's 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 so clever. It's so clever. So this is what we're going to talk about. Like you know, when you get guys out there who give you good boxing training, I've mentioned this before. It's not that boxing trainers are not valuable. I think there's a lot of things to do that folks just take for granted. And I mentioned this before. There's a boxing gym here in D.C. for like a full year. I trained there. I, I didn't work on it. like a lot of combinations. It was just perfecting the jab, just the jab, jab cross, jab cross hook, jab cross hook, uppercut, uppercut cross. You know what I mean? basic combinations because they want to refine your skill so cleanly. They want your jab so clean. But what MMA asks of you a little bit is you got to get a little messy sometimes. If you whiff on a punch in boxing because of the rules, because you can't do that, and because they sort of want you to always have sort of a clean body movement and sort of be efficient in use. And by the way, that, that like karate chop back is not going to be as powerful as your hook. Your hook is going to crush somebody. And if you can box like that, where even in the streets, in the street fight, if you miss on a punch, you know, you're going to beat this donk, whoever you're fighting, who's not properly trained. You're going to crush him with that hook. Okay. Um, this is designed for prize fighting. This is designed for, um, you know, it's designed for this guy who has this problem. Here's a great solution for it because the rule set is so open. The creativity is there. You can take advantage of it. A boxing guy would, it was just never, probably never occur to him but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of other value they can give you they're big on making sure your weight's balanced when you punch that your defensive necessity is is you know is met you know if you're jabbing straight and your arm needs to come right back the same line and be right back here this guy that i used to train with if he would wear uh focus or maybe it was maybe it was full-on pads yeah it's full pads and uh if you weren't if your guard wasn't tight 
when you brought your hand back, right? He would take the tie pad, or that's what I call him, but just the boxing pad, and he would drive it up to the center of your guard and hit you in the face with it. And believe me, that wasn't fun. But it just shows you like how disciplined they are about all the techniques. You know, everything has to be smooth, clean, nice. Uh, and I think there's value to that. You just have to know if you know if you're at an Arlovsky stage where you're in your mid to late thirties. You know, having the cleanest uppercut in the world is probably not the most important thing. But if you're 16, you know, forget about the spinning back fist. Let's work on your jab. Let's work on your uppercut. Let's work on your footwork. Let's work on your on your weight distribution, on your balance. Those things are pretty damn critical. You know, um, it's just that MMA's maybe this maybe this is the takeaway. MMA is still so wide open in terms of minor technical improvements that have major implications that it can even help your game in late age, especially at heavyweight where guys can stay in the game a little bit longer than normal, you know, uh, because power is the last to go and there's many more people just like them in the division, right? They're not fighting a bunch of 20-year-olds. Um, they're fighting a lot of their own 30-year-old contemporaries plus, right? So it, it just allows a technical adaptation um, in some some capacity to to give you some longevity in the game. Maybe that's the takeaway. All right, someone says, Luke, you owe me an apology. I might. Uh, I contribute to the chat most weeks, and in the live chat before the Gonzaga Crow Cop fight sometime in April, I posted a question, were you wrong about Arlovsky? In summation, in this question I asked, if you, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think Arlovsky could have had a second career win if you judged the UFC too harshly when they announced they had re-signed him? Blah, 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 blah. You pretty much destroyed me for five minutes straight. Uh, you rhetorically asked if I was trolling. I had to stay off the website for a couple of days in case anyone recognized me. Now both Arlovsky and Krokop have won their fights. Well, come on, let's be real with the Krokop fight. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that one too. Uh, a, can I get an apology? Yes, I'm sorry. Two, could you answer this question? Without berating me, or if you can, if it's funny, as in this dressing downs I got last time, do you think Arlovsky has a good chance against either Kane or Verdum? I do not think it's a good chance against Kane. Um, and he beat Verdum last time, but Verdum, Verdum's a little bit different because Verdum's like Verdum, you can like, okay, remember I mentioned before, it's like you point to Arlovsky, it's like, what was the major technical improvement? And it really wasn't until this fight that I kind of got a clearer sense of it. Um, this Brown fight. But with, but with Verdum, you can point to a lot, right? You can point to, I mean, as I mentioned before, there's all kinds of things you can point to, not least of which is the clinch, which you can get into fairly easily with, with Andre Olavsky. And I wonder if Brown, excuse me, if uh, Verdum could beat him down in there. Not, you know, in one go and then stop the fight, but over the course of the fight, really sort of touch him up and do damage. And if he exits the, the clinch break properly, you know, I, I wonder about that. At distance, you know, look, Arlovsky's a handful. But, but uh, you know, when they fought, what was that, 2000, Jesus, seven? When did they fight? Uh, when did those donkeys fight? They fought 2007. I mean, it's been eight years. Verdum's just a different fighter. So is, so is Arlovsky, but not, there's not, it hasn't been the same dramatic level of growth in, the, in this game. So um, I like Arlovsky's chances much more against Verdun. Um, but he's got power to sleep anyone, obviously, still, you know. Those two right hands he closed the show with against Brown were, like, brutal, man. He's always had a good uppercut. 
He's always had a good right-handed uppercut. Um, he crushed Matt Yushchenko with it, you know. Came under the arm. Bang. That's a great one. He beat the hell out of uh, Carrera, Cabbage Carrera with it. Um, so he's still got a potent punch, you know. He's still got a potent punch. It's just I wonder if the pressure game – see, the pressure game of Velasquez, if he can avoid the big punch, and I think he probably could, could he pressure – Arlovsky back and control the space. And that's where I think he gets into trouble. If you can take away the movement of Arlovsky, that's one of the big things that you can have some success with him against. Um, if you can get him to, to the ground, you can have a lot of success, I think. He's just not hes not dynamic off of his back. So have I been wrong about Arlovsky? Incontestably. And I, uh, uh, I can have no other statement except that. First time I'll say in a while where I was just like, I cannot, I just didn't see it coming. I can't look back and say, well, I said this and I said that. No, I was unequivocal. It was uh, ridiculous and couldn't have been more wrong. Just couldn't have been more wrong. All right, top MMA Cinderella stories. I was wondering what you think of the top five Cinderella stories in MMA history. Mine are one, Lawler winning the belt after years of up and down losses. That's good. Frank Mir recovery after winning the belt. That was a big one, man. Because I remember when he got injured. Matt Brown resurgence as a contender after getting cut. Matt Brown got cut. He may have gotten cut and brought right back, but I don't think he. Matt Brown got cut. Matt Brown's first fight was in 2008 at the Ultimate Fighter 7, and he has fought on UFC shows since then. Maybe he got cut briefly, but he got brought right back. And you look at his record before he got to the UFC, it's crazy. Um, Arlovsky's chin glued back together. See, it's not. It's just not as bad as people said it was. It's not as good as people want it to be. But certainly his redemption story generally is up there. And then someone says RDA winning the belt and top pound for pound after being less than a gatekeeper for years and broken jaw. By the way, rally for Mark Hunt. Mark Hunt's another one. Mark Hunt is up there because he was on such a losing streak and was like completely overlooked. Um, it's funny that three of those are heavyweights. Hunt, Arlovsky, and Mir. That's sort of interesting. It tells you because these guys can hang around the game a little bit longer. Like if you fall, if you fall down the rabbit hole of lightweight, boy, that's a long hill to climb, man. But if something happens at heavyweight, like you know, there's just a lot of evidence to prove you can make a comeback. I don't think it's necessarily accidental that three of the ones you're pointing out are all in the same weight class. RDA is different. Brown is a what's let's see a welterweight and then the welterweight. You got one lightweight on there, two welterweights, and then three heavyweights. Um, I think the takeaway there is it's a little bit easier to mount a comeback in the modern MMA at at, uh, at heavyweight. One says um, the US, the, those purse figures, guys. You guys are reading them like there's some sort of literal truth about things. They are so many different ways to put money in someone's pocket that I don't read those very. You know, you get a bonus for showing up on certain things because they structure it that way. Pulling the trigger or not. Why won't Uriah Hall use his super moves? I do not know, man. I do not know. When he throws, he's dangerous. He just doesn't seem to let his hands go. Scared of getting clipped. Um, wants a fight to look a certain way. Likes competing at a more sparring pace? I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know what kind of competition experience he has outside of MMA. You know, you see guys like Daniel Cormier who have, you know, ridiculous competition experience just generally in their athletic life or Ronda Rousey. You know, they have, they have their own pace and things that they like too, but they just sort of know that um, there's a certain kind of rhythm you need to have to, to win. And if you're not keeping up with that, things are going to go badly for you. Um, and so they keep that. Now, Rousey is just a little more dramatic than Cormier's. They, again, everyone's got their own rhythm no matter what. But when you see someone with a competition experience, they sort of have an idea about what kind of forward progress, not just literal forward progress, but sort of the more metaphorical way, how it's supposed to be going um, in order to make things happen for themselves. I, I don't know what kind of, you know, I know what his background is from a, from a training standpoint, but not from a competing standpoint outside of MMA. So maybe that's it. Um, again, maybe he doesn't want to get hit. I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know what the issue is there. But it's pretty unequivocal at this point. He should not have lost to Hafel Natal, and he did. Uh, Islam Makachev. What did you make of Islam Makachev's performance? Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, right? Um, look, one, one thing I've noticed about some of these Dagestani guys, and, and this is true for um, Habilov, Nurmagomedov, and now Makachev, they have great striking backing up. They have pretty good striking in the pocket, you know, simple stuff, but effective. Um, not so great in closing the distance. And so that, 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 is, that is not something that can't be fixed, but it's sort of one commonality I've noticed about them. Uh, Hopalov a little bit better than, than Nurmagomedov and Makachev, but Nurmagomedov and Makachev just kind of like wing punches, chin in the air, and then dive on something. Now, once they get their hands on you, you know, it's a boat race at that point, but um, that's sort of one thing I noticed that's not so great, but like, it's so crazy, man, the rest of their game, everyone talks about the throw that he had, you know, one thing you go back and you watch Nurmagomedov compete, I've mentioned this before, it's not just, he's got wrestling takedowns, and he's got like judo takedowns, and he's got collegiate folk style-esque kind of scrambling, like all the different ethoses of grappling, he's got uh, uh, all the, the cultures and all the different um, techniques, he's got them all blended into one. We'll see if Makachev is that kind of guy, but you saw some of that where he had the ability to dive on a double if he wanted. He had the throw from the from uh, the wizard, the Harai Goshi from the wizard. And then one thing they didn't notice was they had a 50-50 neutral position. So you got one underhook on me, I've got one underhook on you. But Koontz was pushing into him, pushing into him and trying to rotate because he was getting pushed against the fence. So he was trying to push himself away from it. Makachev just timed it as he was stepping and kicked out the lead leg foot and then turned him over and got into side control. Stuff like that, foot sweeps, you know. There's just so many different tricks they have. The effortlessness with which they take the back. You see guys who know how to take the back and then guys who take the back as a matter of instinct and then can balance themselves there. And Makachev had all of that. So, like, um, there's a lot of reason to believe he could do dangerous things here. We'll see how the striking improves and everything else and as the level of opponent goes up. But I would say for a UFC debut – Pretty damn good. Uh, okay. Someone says, do you really want to get rid of PEDs? Luke, last week you suggested that you believe the commission's new drug policy was unfair. I don't disagree in regards to cannabis, but I am surprised to hear you react this way and relate to PED offenses. It seems to me that if our objective is to rid MMA of PEDs, you can stop there because you're never going to rid them of PEDs. You're going to reduce use to a certain level, ideally, but you're never going to get rid of them. So if your aim is to get rid of them, you're going to take measures so insane that you're going to ruin things. But let me just read this guy's statement. It seems to me that if our objective is to rid MMA of PEDs, then draconian measures are needed. Well, I mean, do you hear yourself? 
The only way to get PEDs out of MMA, there is no way to get PEDs out of MMA. There's only a way to reduce use. That is it. It's like saying, well, I'm going to get cockroaches out of New York City. Good luck. Um, is to put in place such drastic penalties that fighters become paranoid about what they put in their body. Fighters have to be so scared of failing that they check the box 25 times before eating a bowl of Cheerios. For the first few years, this created a tense atmosphere for fighters, and many young fighters may have to forfeit their, uh, their careers because of silly youth mistakes. But I'm sorry to say this is a price that has to be paid. Do you hear yourself talking? I mean, this is all the evidence I need. You are never going to get rid of PEDs in MMA. You are only going to reduce them at best, number one. Number two, you mean to tell me that a 21-year-old kid who is a dumbass, not a bad guy, just a dumbass, who gets bad advice from a bad guy in the gym because he doesn't know any better, and he takes something and then loses three years of his career, which he may decide after a year or two, F this, I'm just going to go back to being a real estate agent or I'll join the military or whatever, that this is a good thing, or he, you know, versus after a year suspension, he could have learned his his from his mistakes, not not committed that again. That's better to you. Here's what you need to accept. You seem to think, and the commission thinks this. I'm not saying you CDF. I'm saying you generally, the proverbial you. Many of you out there seem to think that these measures are so drastic that fires will say, "Oh well, I just can't get involved." Some might say that. I'm betting that that won't be the case. What I'm betting is that what's going to happen is that they're still going to take the same amount of risks. I'm betting that fighters are just going to say, you know what? I need this fight. I cannot lose this fight. I have stuff that their system can't detect. They may still only do a year analysis. They're not going to get me with this. They're still going to take risks. And some might not take risks, but my point is enough are still going to take risks that you're going to have a position where you're doing ridiculous things to guys' careers where you don't need to be and you can still be a effective police agent of use. The, the key for me was not that punishments need to be more severe. The key for me was that the testing need to be more regular. That was the problem for me. If you have more regular testing and guys are getting caught more often and they're still getting punished and they're still getting pretty severely punished, there's enough going on there where you can reduce use without damaging the sport. Because what you want to do is you want to increase penalties to the point where guys are just quitting in their 20s because three years out is just they can't make money for three years. Do you hear yourself? You can't make money for three years? Three years. People can get a college degree in three years. That makes no sense. That's, that's, that's absurd. Now, second or third offenses, okay, fine. We can have a different conversation. But a first-time offense, and by the way, that doesn't apply just to UFC. That applies to any professional show in that state. Some donk on a prelim card is just going to end his career? Why would you do something like that? If your belief is that I can put punishments in place so severe that I can eliminate PEDs, you are going to damage the sport. You're going to damage the sport. What you want to do is punish users. If you have multiple-time users, we can have a separate conversation. But you want to have more regular testing all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. That's what you want. Measurable, real testing. Get the guys who are using. Punish them enough. A year for a first-time offense seems you know, well within 
the boundaries for me. That's fine. Um, and then you go on from there. But three years for a first-time offender, I just don't see how you can that – is, that is, to me, totally unconscionable. It's a fantasy to think you can get rid of MMAs or PEDs in MMA. It's not going to happen. You can't get rid of PEDs in any sport. People are going to keep cheating. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, you can't do nothing, but you also can't do everything sort of just blowing the whole joint up. It's something in between. So I'm not saying you have to be comfortable with use, but you have to be comfortable with the idea that eliminating use is a fantasy. And then you have to say, how much do we want to damage people's lives over this? People who are multiple-time offenders, maybe you want to damage their life a lot. But first-time offenders, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And people are like, well, they're not hitting a baseball. They're punching each other in the face. I mean, you know, you don't – if the UF, look, the UFC has bragged about their safety record. There's been no death or, or a permanent, um, you know, like a debilitating injury, like a paralyzation in a UFC fight. And that's happened during the era where apparently everyone and their brother was on steroids. So what exactly is the threat here? It doesn't turn people – it, 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 it is certainly a performance enhancer, but it doesn't turn people like Mark Ruffalo, Bruce Banner, into the Incredible Hulk where they can just snap your neck like a twig. That's not what it does. So if your safety record is that good when so many people were using, well, what does that tell you about use? That it is effective, that it is real, that it does absolutely have an effect on outcomes, but it's, it doesn't turn you into an Avenger. And if it doesn't do that, why are you taking such a unbelievable measure at trying to stop something that ultimately you can't stop anyway. You can reduce, you can't eliminate. So to me, more testing was the answer, not more testing plus, you know, we're going to behead you in front of your loved ones and stone your wife. That was my response. Okay, we have to go. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining me. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can email me at luke.thomas.sbnation.com. And I'm on facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. Uh, plenty of coverage coming your way of um, UC Fight Night 67. Uh, there is an MMA beat tomorrow. And um, I don't know, lots of good stuff coming your way. So I appreciate everyone tuning in. I will see you guys next time. And until then, stay frosty.